there are two types of people in this world. There are those that believe in the possibility that there is a life after this one, and there are those that don't. I would imagine that most of us that are in here find ourselves in here because we find ourselves in a group that even if we don't fully believe or know the details of what that life is, we, we're prone to think that this life that we live is not all that there is, that there is a life after this one. And the question that I would ask you is, how often do you find yourself thinking about that life? I'd wager or I'd bet that most of us don't spend the bulk of our time thinking about the life that is to come. There's things that take place in our life that kind of draw our minds and our hearts to that, right? So the death of a loved one, the death of a church member. A few weeks ago, uh, about an hour and a half before we came in here, there was a car chase through Westview right here, and a guy hit this car with a grandmother and her two grandkids and killed them right there on the spot. Those types of things that take place, they force us to think of the life to come. Just last night, I got a text from my brother and my next door uh, neighbor who's been next door to my mom and my dad for the past 25 years. We grew up together and his dad just died. And it caused us to think about the life that was to come and I think that most of us in this room find ourselves starting to think about the next life when things like that take place, but then it's all too easy to just drift back and to find ourselves constantly thinking about the life that we live right now. The afterlife is great and it's good to think of when things get hard, but I think or I would wager that most of us have enough Problems or frustrations in the life that we live right now to constantly be consumed by what's going to take place next. The frustrations of the life that we have start to become our focal point, and that's what we spend the bulk of our time trying to think through. I mean, just step back and think right now. What are the biggest concerns that you had this week? As you think of your job or the goals that you set, what are the things that you work for? What are your biggest fears of this next week? As you think of all of the goals that you're trying to get to, what are you sacrificing to get to, to those goals? Think about all of those things. And now ask yourself, how many of those things have to do not just with this life, but the life to come? If you're anything like me, it would be very little. That our lives right now are so busy and can be so frustrating that we're consumed with this life. That we know the resurrection is real, but it's not very relevant to the daily life that we live in. I think that most of us, when we talk about the next life, it comes out when a loved one has died, or for those of us that are Christians, when we share our faith and are trying to give somebody an incentive for repenting of their sin. You don't want to go to hell, do you? You want to be with the Lord for all times, don't you? And then it seems as if the 
afterlife or the thought of the next life is never really talked about. Is that God's goal? Was that Jesus' intention when he saved us from our sins? It really doesn't seem like it. Because as you look through the Bible, Jesus talks about the next life and the resurrection so much. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that for Christians, if there is not a life after this one, then we are the ones that are to be pitied above all else. He seemed to think that the thought of the life after this one that we're on right now is supposed to be central and affect the way that we live right now. And the question is, how much can it affect the way that we live right now if we never really think about it? And so what I want to do is I want to take our time and draw our attention to an instance in the Bible where Jesus Christ interacts with people who don't tend to think about the next life much. Turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 12, and we'll be in verse 18. For those of y'all that hadn't been with us, I just want to catch you up for where we are in the book of Mark. Right now, we're in the last week of Christ's life. And in this last week, Jesus is preparing for his death. And the broad statement that we made a few weeks ago when we jumped here into this week is this. That as we walk with Jesus through death, as we see what his life looked like on his way to death, it's going to give us our true purpose for living. It's going to shape the way that we think of our life. I want you to know that the book of Mark was written not just by some dude who spent time with Christ and hoped that the biography that he wrote would be a New York Times bestseller. This was written by Mark to a group of Christians in Rome who were being persecuted for their faith. Their lives were outside of their control and they lived very frustrating lives in the here and now. And so what Mark does is he takes this life of Christ and he writes to give them this book so that people who are going through very frustrating lives right now could be encouraged and spurred on. And so the one point that he's going to make here that's really going to shape our time is this. Your view of the life to come shapes the life that you control. Your view of the life to come shapes the life that you control. The life that you have right now is lived, and the shape that it has, it's because of your view of what life will be like to come. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 18, it starts off and it says this, And the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. And the next one took a wife, and he died, and he left no offspring. And the third one likewise... And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Verse 24. 
And Jesus said to them, is this not the reason why you were wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush? How God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. I'm set a little background. This book starts off with a group called the Sadducees. It says here and it's clear they didn't think that there was a life after this one. They thought and they lived as if this life was all that there was, that once you died, that was it and you were gone. Not only did they not believe that there was a life after this one, but they really didn't believe in angels, demons, God's sovereignty. For them, life was all about free will. Life was all about the things that they could control and they could do. So as they come here, it's odd that they would ask Jesus a question about the resurrection because they didn't even think that there was one. And it gives us their motive. They came to him not to get knowledge, but to try to embarrass him. And so what they do is they take God's word that's meant to reveal to us God's way, and they use it to form this riddle. And what they say is, hey, if the resurrection is true, what takes place with this thing that God put in? In Deuteronomy 25, God puts in this principle to care for uh, widows when they die. Back then, people didn't have life insurance. So if a widow died and she didn't have any kids, she was destined to be poor and not to be cared for. So the provision that God put in was that a brother could come in and take care of his wife, that he could provide her with a child that was her life insurance. He'd grow up and he would care for her. God did this so that as the widow died, she could be cared for by somebody that was God-fearing and loved her. And so they say, if the resurrection's true, then what takes place if this happens? And seven brothers marry her, and they don't have kids, and then they all die and they go up. Is God just trying to be like Jerry Springer? Is he trying to set folks up in a way so that when they get to the next life, they fight over her and they lay claim? And so they're trying to ask this not to find out what God says, but they're trying to ask this to prove that nobody should listen to Jesus because he's trying to teach folks things that is absurd. There's no life to live for except for the life that's right now. And it's funny, look at the way that Jesus responds to somebody that's going to take God's word and twist it. Verse 24, his very first words are this. Is this not the reason why you were wrong? And then 27, he ends up and he says, you're quite wrong. So this whole thing is him saying to a group of people that are influencers, that are trying to teach folks how they should live, Jesus God in the flesh, a loving God, the very first thing that he says is, you're wrong. The most loving thing that Jesus can do to people that find themselves 
wrong and are influencing more folks is to point out the fact that they are wrong. Tolerating this horrendous use of God's word is not loving. So Christ comes and says, y'all are wrong. Y'all are very, very wrong. Because at the end of the day, people are entrusting themselves to these guys who claim to have the way of life. And at the end of the day, what Christ says is, y'all don't know God's word and y'all don't know the power of God. Y'all don't have the credentials for people to entrust you with their lives. This past week in the news, it came out that an 18-year-old kid in Florida, Dr. Love, opened up this clinic. He got this one guy to invest $10,000. And here you have this 18-year-old kid walking across this clinic with a lab coat and a stethoscope, playing like he is a doctor, and people are going and paying him money, taking the advice that he gives. They're trusting his advice. They're placing their lives in his hand, and he doesn't have the credentials. So the cops come in, and they put him in jail, and they say, you can't walk around here like a doctor. Just because you have a lab coat and a stethoscope, that doesn't make you a doctor. It's dangerous. Because he doesn't have the credentials, but he's advising people on how they should steward their lives. The most unloving thing that you could do here is just live and let live. The most loving thing that can be done is to call them out and to say, you're wrong. This is what Jesus does. And as pastors, this is what God has called us to do here in the life of the church. Because I don't know if you know this, but there are many influential people with lots of renown, especially in the city that we live in, that don't have the credentials to tell people how they should live their lives based on God's word. And when I say credentials, I don't mean a degree. What I mean is knowledge of the scriptures. The fact that in John 5, Christ says to a group of folks, hey, you search the scriptures because you think that in these they have life. It's these scriptures that testify about me. So the center point of the Bible, the reason why the Bible was written to tell about Christ and what he came to do here in the world. So then Paul's going to pick that up in 1 Timothy 1 and says this. This is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance. Christ came into the world to save sinners. The reason why Jesus came into the world was to save sinners. The Bible was written to talk about Jesus. So if you use the Bible and guys stand up week after week after week and talk about the Bible, but don't talk about Jesus, sin, salvation, repentance, forgiveness of sins, then they're misusing the Bible. People are entrusting their lives to them. And they're making them feel comfortable in the lives that they live right now on their way to hell. So when we talk about week after week the importance of being in a church where you hear the gospel preached, when you come in here week after week and you find yourselves 
being able to recite what we recite, and you know where the gospel comes in, then what we're saying is that's a good thing because we never want you to come to the scriptures and to leave without knowing how a passage points to Christ and his work to save sinners. Anybody that doesn't do that with the Bible on a repeated basis is a silent killer. It's like carbon monoxide slowly leaking into your house. It may not hurt at first. It may actually feel good when you hear certain things. But eventually, it's going to destroy anybody that takes heed to it. So the sum total of what Christ says to this group is here. Hey, you all that don't believe in a life to come. Hey, if y'all don't get anything else, no, they're wrong. No, they don't get it. No, that the life to come shapes the life that you control right now. And if you don't think that there is a life to come, if you don't live in light of the life to come, you're never going to live this life right. And so as Christ goes on, I think there's two things that he's going to help us to see as we think about the life to come. And the very first one is this. That if we have the right view of the life to come, then we'll guard ourselves from this first danger. And that's this. We won't overemphasize what will soon be extinct. The first charge is don't overemphasize what will soon be extinct. Verse 25 says this, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. So what these guys do is they take this hypothetical question about marriage. They talk about death on and on and on, and they treat it very flippantly. And they make the assumption that the life that they know now is going to be the thing that shapes the life that's to come. And Christ's saying, that's backwards. Don't take what you see here in the now and think that that's what life's going to be like then. Christ says, listen, marriage, right? You think of the three institutions that God has established, the church, which isn't here yet, the family, and the government. The family lies at the heart of all of what God's trying to do here in the world. So they sit here and they take this thing, marriage, that seems to be so central to life here in the now. And the very first thing that Christ says is, ah, when they're raised from the dead, when, not if, it's going to take place. What he says here is they won't be married or given in marriage. Marriage. How central and beautiful that it is right now. Do you know that the Bible says marriage is temporary? Marriage, the relationship that we know one day will be extinct. It will be gone. 
there will be no more use for it. And Christ says that if that's the case, if that's what's going to take place, don't overemphasize it in the here and now. I use the word extinct very uh, purposefully. Because here's what takes place. When you and I think of extinct, we think of a loss, right? So we think of uh, the dodo bird, or we think of a certain kind of whale, or we think of things like um, Crystal Pepsi, tan M&Ms, 90s R&B, right? We think of all of these things, and we feel like our world is a worse place because we don't have these things. We look at extinction and we think of it as a loss. Here's the beauty of what takes place. though: As beautiful as marriage is right now and it is here in this world. When Christ says that it'll be extinct or it will be no more. It's not a loss. It's not for us to think as if. In the life to come, we're going to have something less or something worse than we have right now. Extinction can be a good thing if it gives way to something better. Right? So for those of y'all that, um, you know, it's funny to look out here at the church and, and to see lots of gray and to see um, folks over here with no mustaches, right? It's just kind of this broad sweep. But back when I grew up, I had this little thing called a Walkman. And in a Walkman, right, I had this cassette tape. Um, And what took place was like, it was huge because anywhere that I went, I could take along my favorite song. But if I wanted to hear the song over and over, there were two things that I could do. One is I had to play it and spend time and rewind it, play it and rewind it. And if you did that too much, the tape would mess up. So you'd have to take the pencil and put, put, put it in. Or I'd sit at home and I had two cassette tapes side by side. Um, and I would play my song and record it in this one. Press pause, rewind it. So all of this worked just so that I could hear my favorite song over and over and over. Well, then what took place was... Cassette tapes were done away with, and it gave way to this thing called CDs. So then I didn't have a Walkman, I had a Discman. So now if I uh, wanted to hear my favorite song over and over, what would take place is I'd just press the, the rewind button, and I didn't have to wait, and it would go back. But then as I tried to play it in my car, and I would drive, and you'd hit a bump, it would right, skip, or it would scratch up, and there were all these flaws. Then the iPod came out, and I had my songs there, and that was great because I didn't need those things, but then people started to steal them, so I lost it, and when I lost it, I lost all of my music. But now, in the day and age that we live in, once you buy music, it goes to this cloud. I don't know what the cloud is, but it's there, and all of my songs are there. So listen, listen. Any device that I have, any device that I lose, it doesn't matter because my music's still there. I can buy a new one and download it from the cloud, and it's there. 
Cassette tapes are extinct. But it gave way to something better. There is no sense of loss. Nobody is sitting here nostalgically thinking of cassette tapes. Those of y'all that never owned a cassette tape are not here right now saying, Dag, I wish I would have had one of those. There's no loss because there's something better. And here's the beauty of what takes place. Nobody that finds themselves with God in heaven that wasn't married or that didn't have sex here in this world is not going to feel like they lost anything. There's no sense of loss in the life to come. All of the things that we have here, we're getting ready to play something from you too. See, I'm back there playing. Back to the tech. All the things that we have here, listen, it's temporary. God designed marriage to fulfill a unique purpose here in this world that's not going to extend beyond this world. In the next life, it's not that marriage has ended. It's that it's transcendent. Marriage is here in this world to give us a picture of Christ's love for the church. So that as people that don't know Christ can look to him and see the way that a godly husband and spouse love one another and care for one another. And they'll have some picture of God's love for them. Marriage was put here in this world that was ravaged by death to lead to the procreation of children and ensure that the beautiful world that God made is inhabited by God's people. Marriage was created for companionship to take place here in this world. And what takes place is in the life to come. When we actually see God face to face, we're not going to need a picture of marriage to show us that truth. In the life to come, Well, God gives us a great capacity to enjoy companionship with people without this sin that distorts the longings that we have. We're no longer going to need it. In a life to come where we finally see in a world right now that's divided by color, finally sees that because of Christ's blood, He's actually made us all family. The purpose of marriage will have been fulfilled. And it'll just give way to something better. Because it's not there, it doesn't mean that it's a loss. There. Here. For those of us that have lost loved ones or spouses or parents or Brothers, it is a very real loss here. It does hurt, and it'll hurt as long as we live until we get to the life that God prepared for us, and then it'll all make sense. So we pray for God's grace here in the meantime, and we long for a day where we see the true purpose of marriage. And with that being said, I just want to say this. Marriage and sex 
are temporary, which means this. They make terrible gods. You do not want to make a god out of something that you can lose. Because if you can lose it, you absolutely will lose it here in this life. When we think of the concept of God, I think we think of it in a way um, that's inverted from the way that the Bible tell us, tells us how it is that we view our God. When we think of a God or our God, we think of the God that we give a title to as our God. And then we think in, in terms of, all right, this is my God. On this, sometimes I submit and give up stuff to this God. And there's sometimes that I don't sacrifice to this God. When the Bible talks about how it is that you identify your God, it tells you to kind of start with, no, no, no. What are you sacrificing for? Whatever you give up, the things that are most valuable in order to get, that's your God. So talk all day about how you serve the God of the uh, Bible and he's my, my, my God. But the Bible tells us, no, 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 no. Look at the things that you sacrifice for. Right? We've done premarital counseling for the past seven years. And one thing that we, we, we constantly find is there's times where you sit down with two people that are on their way to get married. And they say all the right things about how, you know, we love God, we value him, we really want to seek him and pursue him. But then when you start to dig a little deeper, you start to sit back and just ask things. All right, so y'all say that you want to love God, you want to please him, you want to serve him with the way that you live your, your life. Where are you living right now? Oh, we live together. Have you always felt like that was okay? Well, no, 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 no. We used to think that it was wrong until we were getting married. And then we felt like I would be more convenient if we were to save up and we would do this. And so what you start to find is that people have convictions, but then they start to sacrifice the convictions that they had. Why? In order to get married, because marriage is kind of viewed as this end, and they chase it. They sacrifice their morals, their free time, their money, their goals, and their dreams, and marriage starts to become this end. And they do all that they can to get there. And then they get there and they're married. And what they find out is it's severely disappointing. Why? Because it makes a terrible God. It was never meant to hold the weight of your hopes and your dreams and your aspirations. It was never meant to provide for you. All the love and affection and attention that you need. That's what God does. And if you put your hope in that, then what takes place is in the day that you have to say goodbye. Because at one time or another, you will have to say goodbye to a spouse. Whether it's death or divorce or distance. What takes place then? 
What takes place when the thing that you've put your hope in, what takes place when your God dies? You better hope that he can be raised from the dead. And the thing about marriage, the thing about sex is it's temporary. It doesn't last. It makes a terrible God. If you're single, marriage is a beautiful thing. It is a wonderful thing that we wholeheartedly believe in that you should pursue as a means to an end, not an end in itself. It makes a terrible God. For those that are married in here, there's some that are like, marriage has a shelf life. It's it's not going to end. Praise God. That's not what Christ wants you to pull from here. That's not what God wants you to pull from here. Although marriage is not eternal, the effects of the marital relationship produce eternal impact. Men, the way that you love and you care for your wife in the here and now, you're preparing her to meet Jesus. If that's your goal and if that's your charge and your task, though you're not going to be married to her in the next life, your job and your duty here in this life is to prepare her to to meet the Lord. How are you preparing your wife to meet Jesus? How are you preparing your kids to meet Jesus? Are you praying with them daily? And when you miss a day, you don't get frustrated, but you pick up the the next day. Do you cherish them? Do you take advantage of every opportunity that you have to use this marriage to give people that don't know Christ this picture of God? Or do you disregard what God's trying to do there? Marriage is temporary, yes, but it's a great tool that God has provided to have an impact on eternity. Husbands and wives, don't waste your time. Don't waste your time here and now being in conflict with one another over petty things. Don't waste your time living in unforgiveness and not pursuing reconciliation. Don't waste your time pursuing joy or fulfillment outside of marriage. Spend the best of your time, the best of yourself, taking advantage of the limited time that God has placed you together to advance his glory. Christ's first point when he talks about marriage isn't going to be forever, is he tells him don't overemphasize what will soon be extinct. Marriage has a shelf life. Treat it that way. Leverage it for God's glory. He makes this point at the end and he says this, uh, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. What does that mean? I think that that speaks to function, right? So it's not like when we die and we're raised, that we're all going to get our wings. I don't, I don't think that's what he's trying to say here. I think what he's saying is that as you look at what angels do and how they live, their life is completely governed and consumed by relationship with God. And that's what's going to take place in the next life. That's going to be the great thing that you and I are 
set aside for us. So the first thing that Christ says is, is if we have a right view of the life to come, it's going to keep us from overemphasizing things that will be extinct. But if we have a right view of the life to come, I think that the next thing that it does is it does this. It keeps us from underemphasizing what's eternal. Uh, verse 26 says this. And as far as the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are very wrong. His point here is this. There is a type of relationship that we have here on this earth that will be extinct. It's just for a short time. It's just for the right here and now. But then he goes on and he, he says this. There is a type of relationship that's eternal. Look here that when you and I talk about folks that we've lost. Do you know what we don't do or what folks don't do? They don't talk about them in the present tense, most time, right? They say, I had a brother. I had a wife. I had a loved one. They're now with the Lord now. They're gone from me. I had them. They're not here now. I can't make any new memories with them. But Christ, to a group of folks, right? This group only believed in the first five books of the Bible, so Jesus comes and plays their own game and he says, this, hey, do you remember that one time at the bush, you know, the burning bush, where God talks to Moses? What did he say? And he said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. That as God speaks to the people he is in relationship with, he doesn't use the past tense. He uses the present tense. And so what that means is that the people that find themselves in relationship with God, although they die in the here and now, they're living. Just because they're absent from us, it doesn't mean that they're not alive. And Jesus is trying to point us to the fact that the one thing that is eternal is relationship with God. One of the things that's hardest in the life that we live right now is saying goodbye. Right? We have friends that we grew up with and we moved. Distance made us say goodbye. Death makes us say goodbye disagreements with folks, frustrating things that they do that get on our nerves, make us say goodbye. Does disease can shrink up somebody and make us say goodbye. Alzheimer's can make somebody that's there that's very present with us. It can force us to have to say goodbye to them. You and I hate saying goodbye, but because we can't control those things, we have to say goodbye. The beauty of what Christ points out here is this. God hates saying goodbye, but God doesn't have to say goodbye. 
God, God doesn't start a relationship with somebody and gets frustrated because he has to say good, goodbye. What distance could somebody go to that could force God to have to say goodbye? There's no place. David says in Psalms 139, God, where can I go that I'm not in your presence? What disease can take place that can make, that can force God to have to say goodbye to somebody? Nothing. That's why Jesus comes on the scene and heals people of all of these sicknesses, not just so that they can be whole, but so that they can find themselves in relationship with him. What disagreement or frustration can make God say, I'm done with you? We get a hint because of the people that God links himself with. God says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac, and Jacob. And if you read your Bibles, one thing that you find out about all of these guys is all of them were moral failures. All of these guys, clear things that God told them to do, they disagreed with God and did the exact opposite of what God said to to do. But God doesn't say goodbye. These guys that are frustrated with life in the here and now. These guys that would look at their lives and the way that they live and consider themselves failures. This God links himself with them forever and says, I'm the God of people like this. Why? So that people like us who find ourselves here in this room and feel those same things would never say that a God like that wouldn't want somebody like me. We hate saying goodbye, but we have to because it's outside of our control. God hates saying goodbye. And he doesn't have to because there's no disease, there's no distance, there's no disagreement. Death cannot separate us from the love of God. And that gives us a great sense of security. For all of us to know that regardless of where we are at any point in time, regardless of where you are right now, there is no coming back to God, repenting of your sins, and hearing from God, I don't want to deal with it anymore. I can't. Give me my space. God doesn't do that. We don't have what it is that God has inside of him. God hates saying goodbye. And he doesn't have to. And it gives us a great security. And this truth about the life to come. This truth about the resurrection. It doesn't just give us a great security. But it lies at the center of all of what God's trying to do. Here's what I want you to see. All of these folks were people that God made great promises to. If death was all that there was and there was no life to come, then God isn't trustworthy. All he did was rack up a bunch of credit because he knew that they were going to die and they didn't have to pay things off. It's like when I was in school, I took out so many more student loans than I had to 
And my thought was, well, by the time I pay this back, or my hope was, Jesus, I pray that you come back before I have to pay all this back. I want to make a promise that I'm going to pay all this back, but I have no intention of it. Because I think that I'm going to die or you're going to come back before I can pay it all off. If Jesus, if God doesn't raise those that are in relationship from the dead, then he's done the same thing. He's made a promise that he never planned on keeping. And the beauty of God being a God of the living is that the promises that he makes, he fully intends on keeping, and he wants to keep it in such a way that the people he made the promise to can sit back and enjoy the great things that God has done. Relationship with God. That's the thing that lies at the heart of what it means to live eternally. So what does it mean for us if the resurrection is true and we don't want to live this life over-emphasizing the things that will be extinct or under-emphasizing the things that are eternal? I think that the one truth that I want to leave us with is this. The one charge is for you to live a life that revolves around relationship with God. If the key to eternal life is not the rewards that we get, is not the recreation that we have, is not the resumes that we have, if the key to eternal life is relationship with God, then what that means is eternal life or the life to come, the life that God's promised, it doesn't start then. It starts now. One of my favorite song lyrics is from a guy that says, death for the Christian, it's not a period. It's a comma. The life that we live now in relationship with God is the life that he promised. And as time goes on and as death takes place here and as God brings us back to live with him, the life, the joy, the peace that he promised, it starts now and it extends into eternity. So how do we do that? How do we live a life that revolves around relationship with God? And it's this, it's one question. It's asking yourself, how is the decision that I'm making right now impacting eternity? So think about where you live. How is the choice that you made for where you live, how does that impact eternity. And not saying that we all have to go to the worst and the, hard, the hardest places, but we all have to think, right, how is the life to come shaping the life that I control and I live now? Four years ago, I was impacted by this, um, and we've told this story so many times, but Richard lived in Ashview Heights. Him and his wife um, and their three kids at the time, three or two, three kids. Amanda was pregnant at the time, was in a house, um, and the Browns were with them as well as they were trying to transition here to the West End. They had two kids, and she was getting ready to have her third. Um, and what took place was LB wakes up one morning, 
And he hears what he thinks is a baby crying. So he goes over and checks. None of the kids are crying. Looks out the front window, and he sees a man with a rifle beating in the head of a lady five yards from his house. So he yells out, stop or I'm going to call the cops. The man doesn't stop. He runs out the front door and says, stop or I'm going to call the cops. In this van, there's another man in the back of the van. He gets in the van, uh, backs up, hits this lady, and drives off. LB goes out in the street. They call the cops. I get a call from Amanda. While I'm in my house on the east side of town in a a nice, safe place where we really didn't have to lock our doors. And she says, hey, can we come over to y'all's house? And I'm like, yeah, come. So they come. They share all of this stuff. And I'm like, man... Y'all stay as long as y'all need. We really, yeah, just want y'all to feel safe, right? Because that's the the goal. We want you to feel safe. That matters more than anything. And then what took took place was Richard comes home from work. Um, We're all at the church that night, and we come back, and I sit and I talk, and I'm like, hey, Richard, y'all can stay with us for as long as you need. And what he said was, man, as I was sitting and I was praying and just reading God's word, I was impacted by the fact that the reason why we moved here was that we really wanted to have an eternal impact. There are people that live here in the place that I live in. He's he's like all the, the folks that I live near, they don't have any place else to go. So what do we look like as Christians are those that say we believe that there is a life to come and all those cute things that death is just a comma. What do we look like at the first sign of trouble or heartache leaving? This is the reason why we moved here. And so we're going to go back and we're going to stay there. And they packed up and they went back there and they stayed there. Why? Because he believed that this life was not all that there was. He believed that there was something better. He believed that even if the worst took place, it wasn't the worst thing that could take place because he believed that there was a life after this one. He believed and he lived and he chose to live like the Lord Jesus who didn't just teach about this life that was to to come, but he was the divine test case. For all of us that should have earned death and stayed in the grave, the beauty about where this book heads is that Jesus heads to his death. He doesn't live a safe life. He lives this reckless life, invests it like a seed that's put in the ground. He knows that he's going to die, but his death is going to bring forth fruit. Him being raised from the dead, what took place was that he paid for all of our sins, for all of the times we've disagreed with God, for all of the times that we've done what we shouldn't have. Christ died for our sins and he raised from the dead in order to transfer the great courage that he had to you and I. So that we know that this life that we live is not all that there is and death is not final. That we live as those that, whose lives revolve around relationship with God. And it doesn't mean that you have to move and to do what Richard did. 
It just means for the Christian, you have to be as intentional in your thought as to why you're doing what you're doing. And here's the beauty of what takes place. If we really live lives as those that find ourselves in relationship with God, it takes our problems. And the things right now, the frustrations that lie at the center of our lives, it displaces all of those things. It puts our problems to the outside. It puts them into perspective. And it reminds us that we do have problems in this life. The problems are very, very painful. We don't want to minimize the pain that exists here in this life. The problems are very present. They're very real and powerful, and they hurt and they consume our lives. But if we believe this truth, then one thing that we all have in common is that regardless of how painful, regardless of how present, regardless of how powerful the problems are in your life, do you know what's true? They're all temporary. They are all passing away. None of those will last. Depression may feel like it will go on forever. But depression is nothing that can reach the life to come. It's not going to last. It may go on for a lifetime. But it can only go on for this lifetime. The thousand lifetimes that we get to live in glory, in relationship with God, it won't reach that. Suicidal thoughts that may frustrate you or bring you to your knees, they're temporary. Because in a place where there is no death, There is no suicide. So the thought of that is extinct. It may be painful. It may be hard. And we want to help as much as we can to walk alongside you. But it is not permanent. It's passing away. Cancer is passing away. Whether in remission or whether it's the very tool that God uses to take us to the resurrection. It doesn't win. It never wins for the person that finds themselves in relationship with Jesus. Your view of the life to come shapes the life that you control. How are you controlling your life in the life or in thoughts of the life to come? As I close, I just want to end off with this quote. Um, I started to read this book that's... Uh, compilation of old African-American preachers that are dealing with the problem of evil. And so here's what takes place. Jupiter Hammond writes as a free man to a group of slaves who are living a frustrating, a hard, and a miserable existence. And here... Hear what he says to people that are in slavery. He says this. Now, my brethren, it seems to me 
that there are no people that ought to attend to the hope of happiness in another world so much as we. Most of us are cut off from comfort and happiness here in this world and can expect nothing from it. Now, seeing this is the case, why should we not take care to be happy after death? Why should we spend our whole lives sinning against God and be miserable in this world and in the world to come? If we do this, we shall certainly be the greatest fools. We shall be slaves here and slaves forever. We cannot plead so great temptations to neglect religion as others. Riches and honors which drown the greater part of mankind who have the gospel in perdition can be little or no temptation to us. He's saying there are people that have all of these things here in life and they ignore the gospel and now they're in hell and all they're doing is reciting all of the things that they wish that they would have practiced in this life. And he says here to a group of slaves, to a group of people that are frustrated by how frustrating life is for them. Listen, it may seem hard right now, but no, this is the greatest blessing from, from, from God. Is life is... If life is hard right now, and it seems as if there's no prospect for a way out, then what he's saying is that you, more than anybody else, should seek joy, not in this life, but in the life to come. And the beauty is for all of us that find ourselves in that place in one form or another, we're reminded that because of what Christ did for us on the cross, because he died and he rose, he gives those of us that have repented of our sins a promise and a hope of a better life to come. And our prayer is that as we reflect constantly on that life to come, it shapes the life that we control. Let's pray. Father, help us not to be those that are so consumed with life in the here and now that we neglect that you've promised us something better when this is all said and done. Lord, there's so many details about the life to come that are a mystery to us. But just help us to rest on the fact that it is fact, Father. It is something that we should constantly set our minds and our thoughts and our hearts to. Give us the grace to do so. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.